0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Julio Friedman, Senior Research Scholar at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, about carbon capture, use, and storage, or CCUS. Julio will give us an overview on the status of CCUS deployment worldwide and the costs of CCUS relative to other approaches for reducing emissions. We'll also talk about policy, including emerging federal policies to increase deployment of CCUS here in the United States. And one quick note, this episode was recorded well before the extent of the coronavirus pandemic had become clear. Stay with us. All right, Julio Friedman from Columbia's Center on Global Energy Policy. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio.
1: My pleasure. Glad to be here.
0: <laughs> so let's um, let's start with a question that I ask all of our guests on the podcast, which is uh, how you got interested in energy and environmental issues, and how you ended up working in this field. Of
1: course, um, if you go way way back, I got interested in uh, geoscience, which is how I started my journey when I took a field trip to Death Valley. And I sat on one side of Death Valley and I looked across to the other side of Death Valley and I thought to myself, wow, nothing's happened here for 500 million years except the mud accumulated on the bottom of the ocean. And there was sort of an incredibly rich response to the movings of the natural world that uh, I voted with my feet and sort of stayed professionally in the sciences and specifically the earth sciences. Fast forward uh, to my time working for ExxonMobil, when I left ExxonMobil, I realized eventually through introduction to the topic of carbon capture that I could take everything I learned at ExxonMobil and just run it backwards and solve a first-tier environmental problem. And that meant that I entered a field that didn't exist, and that was interesting you know that uh, I was able to read all the world's literature in about six months because there was no literature (laughs) Um, and uh, I found the fundamental challenge of working the science and the all of the moving parts with policy and finance and regulation and all these things to be a good fit for me personally and tackling a tough persistent wicked problem like climate change every day means my midlife crisis looks different than other people's
0: (laughs) nice um That sounds good. Well, let's get into the the subject of your midlife crisis, uh, carbon capture, utilization, and storage. Or sometimes people say storage, sometimes they say sequestration. I'm not sure if the distinction matters. Uh, You can tell us if it does. Um, And so let's start off by just like defining the term. So when you're introducing people to the concept of CCUS, how do you describe it?
1: Sure. Uh, CCUS is really two things, carbon capture and carbon storage. The carbon capture part is something we've been doing since 1938. We've been separating CO2 out of industrial streams of flue gas. So that's either from a power plant or from an industrial facility like a steel mill or a refinery. And we've had the technology to do that for a very long time at commercial scale. Uh, We have to do that for the second part, for storage. In order for the storage to work, you need a 95% pure stream of CO2, otherwise, the physics doesn't work. The storage part is also very straightforward. That is deep geological isolation of CO2, essentially in the same kind of rocks that hold oil and gas. You can think about it also as carbon capture and return. You're just taking the CO2 and sending it back to its natural home deep in the geosphere. And in this case, mostly what you're looking at is a saline formation or a depleted oil and gas field and in either case you're storing the rocks basically as a liquid the CO2 goes underground as a liquid phase essentially it's a supercritical phase and in that context it has about the same viscosity and about the same density as oil so it behaves like oil on the subsurface so any coarse volume of rock that is able to hold uh, hydrocarbon or any other buoyant fluid because it has porosity and permeability, meaning it has the ability to hold CO2, and it has a good seal, means that's a place you can store CO2. Great.
0: That makes sense. And um, I didn't know about that, uh, that we've been doing this since 1938. That's fascinating. Can you just yeah. briefly say like what those early applications were?
1: Right. So when people realized that you could separate CO2 at large scale, people began to think about uses for it. And one of the early applications, unsurprisingly, was food and beverage. It was making things like dry ice or putting fizzy water into soda pop, or using it to sparge beer uh, silos and all these other things. And so for brewing, for cleaning rice silos, for all these kinds of things, people found that CO2 is an effective thing to use. It also turns out that CO2 is an extraordinarily good solvent. So people started using it for things like dry cleaning and so forth. Uh, And a handful of industrial purposes. A small volume of CO2 is used today to make... Uh, semiconductors. But uh, really, the killer app, if you will, was discovered in 1972, when people realized that you could use it for enhanced oil recovery. And so we have been separating CO2 from uh, industrial sources and point sources since 1938. We've been injecting it underground since 1972. And so it's really well understood stuff.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so with that sort of very brief history in place. Can you get us up to speed on the state of deployment of CCUS today, uh, both around the world and in the US? And, you know, as you've mentioned, there's all sorts of different applications. So maybe if you could tell us kind of where it's being used today, how it's being used today, uh, and whatever else you think is relevant.
1: Absolutely. So first order of business is we've been doing this since 1996. And when I mean this, I mean keeping CO2 from the air and oceans strictly on a climate basis. We've been separating it and injecting it underground and monitoring to demonstrate it stayed there. The first of these projects was in the North Sea, a project called Schleipner. Uh, Since then, we now have 20 projects operating around the world today. Every year, we capture and inject about 40 million tons of CO2. It's like taking 8 or 9 million cars off the road. And uh, we have another, I don't know, equal number of projects sort of coming online soon. That fleet of 20 projects spans the globe. The largest number of these is in North America. We've got nine or 10 projects here. Uh, There are projects in the North Sea. There's projects in Northern Norway. There's three projects in the Middle East. There's a project in Brazil, a very large project in Australia that came online just earlier this year. And uh, as of recently, a project in China as well. So we really can do this globally and are doing this globally.
0: Mm-hmm. And when you when you say 20 projects, um, are these sort of dedicated storage projects? Are they EOR projects? Are they a mix okay. of those two?
1: So these are 20 dedicated large-scale industrial projects. So by large scale, if it's captured from a power plant, That's basically on the order of a million tons a year or more. If it's an industrial plant, it needs to be larger than about four or 500,000 tons a year uh, as we define these things today. And that definition comes from the Global CCS Institute. So in each case, this is just a dedicated capture and storage project. It's worth knowing we've had well over 100 smaller scale pilots and projects where we sort of learned stuff that were science experiments or points of calibration and so forth. But all of these are commercial scale projects running today And most of those are enhanced oil recovery projects. And the reason they're enhanced oil recovery projects is simple. That's how you finance a lot of these projects today. That's where the revenues come from. But uh, uh, about five of them are just saline formation storage. They're not for EOR. They're just storing it for the purpose of keeping it out of the air and oceans.
0: Great. That's super helpful. Um, And... So when, when you mentioned financing the projects, that leads us to the to the natural question of, uh, you know, what do we know about the costs of deploying the technologies, and you know, what are the economics that that make these projects viable? If we think about uh, both today's technologies and you know maybe what what we'll be looking at in the future, if you could just give us a ballpark of like, you know, how many dollars per ton does it take to kind of make these make these projects work? So before I
1: answer that question, let me note that carbon capture and storage is the only technology that's graded on this measure and I find that unsettling and a little baffling uh, when somebody builds a solar plant or builds a hydroelectric plant or puts an efficiency program into place, they usually don't ask themselves, hey, what's the dollar per ton benefit I'm getting from this? How much money am I spending in order to reduce emissions? Uh, and, and so it, and that's For a number of reasons, but uh, CCS has been born with this particular albatross around its neck. It's the only clean energy technology that's graded on this measure. We'll come back to that later in the program. Um, So because capture varies a lot as a function of things like, you know, the concentration of the CO2 in the original stream, the costs can vary quite a lot. So if you're capturing CO2, say, from an ethanol plant, like we are in Illinois at the Archer Daniels Midland facility in Decatur, that costs are on the order of 25 bucks a ton. And that's the cost for compression, transportation, and deep injection and monitoring. All those costs together are about 25 bucks. Same thing for, say, the Quest project up in Alberta, where we are capturing CO2 from a hydrogen plant and storing it underground there. That one's a little more because it had a little more capital involved, but same ballpark. Both of those projects are just for saline aquifer storage. There's no EOR, there's no oil field revenues. Um, In contrast, if you capture from a coal-fired power plant where the concentrations are much lower, you're talking about something like $100 a ton, which is the cost from the Petronova project in Texas. Um, If you were to capture from a slightly lower concentration stream, like a natural gas plant, it would probably be more like $120 a ton, something like that. And if you capture from the air, the costs are quite a lot higher, uh, somewhere between $600 a ton or $1,000 a ton. But I say that because, again, if you compare this to other clean energy policies, we actually already pay that level for almost all of our policies. Almost all of the policies we put in place have that level of cost associated with them. We just don't rank on this measure. So, for example, cash to clunkers was on the order of $300 a ton. That's what we paid for cash for clunkers. And uh, we we don't use that metric for anything but CCS.
0: So yeah, I mean, let- I so I, I don't want to get hung up on, on, on this too much, but... You know, those of us at at RFF who do climate policy research, we actually do think in these terms a lot uh, and, you know, produce the types of studies that, you know, that make those estimates about, you know, how many Mm -hmm. dollars per ton is this policy worth or that policy worth. Um, So I think at least, you know, among our listeners, I I think this concept of, you know, dollars per ton is not going to be unique to CCS or CCUS. But I think for our our audience, this concept will be, you know, pretty familiar, actually.
1: Um, But it comes back to then the question of finance. All of the way that we finance all of our clean energy, everything these days, no matter what the policy is, is essentially a policy measure. That's how you finance things. Um, It is trying to internalize an externality. You can't do it anymore. And whether it's a renewable portfolio standard, which helps finance renewable plants, or whether it's efficiency standard that goes into the appliances all of these are standards that have a cost associated with them. And so the way that you finance CCS policy ultimately is through policy. It's the only way to get the job done. You can't build these facilities, which have capital costs and operating costs, and expect to get your money back unless there's some policy measure that aligns markets with that goal.
0: Totally agree. Um, and, and we're going to come back to this in just a couple minutes, as, as you mentioned, and talk more about Policy uh, and and CCUS policy in particular. Um, But before we get there, a couple kind of more general questions that people often ask me uh, when I'm introducing them to the concept of CCS, which I do in a very sort of cursory, basic way. Um, But one of the questions that often comes up is a question of scale. Um, And, you know, if we look at the sort of ambitious climate scenarios produced by modelers for the IPCC process, or if you look at ambitious scenarios from the IEA or Shell or others, you know we see very large scale of CCUS deployment, uh, particularly in the second half of the 20th century, um, on the order of you know billions of tons per year. Um, so how plausible do you think that scale is, or just sort of how do you think about that scale issue? So I think
1: about that scale issue is that's the work and if we don't do that, everything costs more money.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So the fact that it's hard is sort of beside the point. Everything we're talking about here is hard. Yeah. Putting the efficiency measures in place that we need to hit those targets is very difficult, very daunting, and very expensive, say, in the building sector. Well, the same thing is true in terms of the transmission build-out for clean electricity. Like It's incredibly daunting and very, very expensive. So I just look at CCS as one of those. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's just like everything else we got to do. Um, but to the point, the reason why integrated assessment models and economic equilibrium models keep generating this very robust result that says, hey, something on the order of 14% of the emissions reduction has to get done with CCS is because it is wildly cheaper than most of the other alternatives. And people think about this in the context usually of power systems, because that's something they see in their day-to-day life. But half of that reduction comes in the industrial sector. It comes from, say, the byproduct chemistry associated with steelmaking or cement, which is an enormous fraction of global emissions. It has to do with other decarbonization of heat of these industrial systems. It has to do with power plants, not in the OECD countries, but in developing Asia, where these fleet of power plants is extremely young, where many of the plants are less than a decade old and have a natural capital life of another 40 or 50 years. That's why these models keep replying with the result that CCS is needed, not everywhere, but in these contexts. And if you don't, replacing those plants with something else simply costs way, way more money. And when we say way, way more money, I mean like 150 percent addition two and a half times more money for the same outcome
0: right that's really helpful and um you know so just following up on that briefly uh, I want to plug a report that you authored recently about uh, challenges, or uh, maybe not challenges, but solutions to decarbonizing industrial heat with the Columbia Center on Global Energy Policy. That was a really nice report. Uh, we'll have Thank a link you. to it in the, in the show notes. It was really helpful for me uh, to think about this issue. Um, and just to go back to the scale question, very briefly, you know, sometimes people raise the question to me of like, is that even technically? possible, right? To store billions of tons. And I think the answer is yes. But if you could just elaborate on that a little bit, it'd be helpful.
1: Yeah. The answer is unquestionably yes. And I can't fault people for not understanding this because most people aren't geologists. And so they don't think about the subsurface ever. Um, But we have done worldwide pretty good assessments of the rocks. And in various places like North America, really good assessments of the rocks, Mm -hmm. where we've had 15 or twenty years. Of research and geological assessment and calibration and testing and that gives us a lot of knowledge and the conservative estimates for the global storage volume for co2 are between 10 and 20 trillion tons of capacity i'll say that again 10 to 20 trillion tons of capacity for comparison historical emissions for human beings total are about 2 trillion tons mm-hmm. so We have more than enough volume in the subsurface to do this. And one of the interesting things is when you go into a new basin and you study it, those numbers tend to get bigger. That's happened everywhere we've done this in North America. It's happened in the North Sea. You start with a generic assessment of rock volume, and then when you start drilling wells and doing your homework and really thinking it through, it looks like the capacity is much larger than you initially guessed.
0: Great. That sense of scale is super helpful. Um, so, last kind of general question, and then we'll get into the policy discussion. Um, but you know, again, when when people are learning about CCUS for the first time, and they're learning about you know the scale that some of these projects could be uh, could be reaching. One of the concerns that they sometimes voice uh, is a concern about permanence of storage. Uh, and another concern that they sometimes voice is uh, you know, what happens if there's a leak uh, or some kind of large release of CO2. So how do you think about those two issues and how do you sort of uh, describe them to people when you're introducing them to this topic?
1: Right, I tend to start by telling people that the Earth's crust has mass and strength. And that means large scale releases just don't happen. They just don't. And the 50 years of CO2 injection we have demonstrate that pretty well. The number of people who have been hurt equals zero. The number of large releases equals zero. The number of pipeline failures that have caused harm to people equals zero. Like, it's just the number zero. And uh, if you were an insurance company, this is the best business to get in the world. It's like the and Hammer business model for selling bacon soda where they just say, hey, rip off the cop and put it in your refrigerator, you know, and nothing happens. <laughs> and they're like, oh, do it again in a month. Like, that's what an insurance company policy on a CCS project is like. So I understand why people have these concerns, but we actually understand this stuff pretty well. And uh, the largest ever release of CO2 from an operational place, a place where we were actually injecting or producing CO2 was actually from CO2 production from a natural occurring CO2 field in Colorado. Um, And that well uh, had a completion problem and sheared in the middle of the well. And it ran out of control for two whole weeks. And they intercepted the well and killed it by injecting concrete all the way down the bore. So that works. Um, That released a total of 20,000 tons of CO2, which is like four days of CO2 emissions from a single big power plant. So it's a tiny volume. And since that time in 1981, the field has operated without fail for 30 years with no problems. So we know what this kind of looks like. And uh, it's just, it is reasonable for people to ask, but they have to understand that this is something where the geoscience is really, really well understood.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, So let's move on now from the kind of general discussion of CCUS and and turn to the policy discussion and focus in the United States. Um, As many of our listeners will know, uh, the US a couple years ago enacted a tax credit for CCUS, uh, which is usually referred to as 45Q. I think that references uh, part of the IRS code. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Can you Give us a description of how that policy works uh, and how effective you think it's been in spurring deployment of new CCS projects. So
1: quite well. And uh, just a quick addendum to what you said, that credit already existed. Recently, it was amended. Ah. So it was created in the Energy Policy Act of 2007, and then it was amended in 2018. And that amendment did a number of really important things. The first thing it did is it uncapped the number of total credits. Uh, that was important because before that, you weren't sure if you were going to get paid. The IRS said, well, there's a total cap of $75 million, and whoever comes first gets it. So if you were developing a project, you weren't guaranteed to get any of that. Right. So they uncapped it. The second thing they did is they increased the value. For saline formation storage, they increased the value to $50 a ton, and for enhanced oil recovery to $35 a ton. The third thing that they did is they allowed transfer of title or transfer of custody of the credits. And in doing that, they said, you don't have to have all the tax appetite yourself. If you're running a capture facility, you can transfer the credits to a partner in the business or the person who's taking custody of the CO2 and storing it. And that increased the range of people who could get involved in the program. Mm -hmm. And all of that's quite good. And already it has stimulated a bunch of projects around the country where people who were not storing CO2 before are now developing projects to store CO2. Uh, one example is an ethanol plant up in North Dakota called Project Tundra. And at Project Tundra, they are planning to capture, again, the byproduct CO2 from fermentation and store it underground.
0: That That's really helpful. Thanks for correcting me on the on the timeline as well. Um So another question on 45Q, um, you know, so in this conversation and in some of your your other speaking engagements that I've seen, um, you know, you're you're certainly a firm. Well, tell me if you think this is the right word, but sort of a firm advocate for larger deployment of uh, CCUS Um, in your view. Is the 45Q credit enough to spur the development or the deployment of CCUS at the scale that you would like to see? Or are there other policy measures that you think would be appropriate, either in tandem with 45Q or in place of 45Q?
1: Um, Thank you for asking that, because it tees up a report that we are about to release. (laughs) Uh, We have another report coming out of the Center on Global Energy Policy, uh, written with uh, my young, brilliant colleague Emeka Ochu and the mighty Jeff Brown out of Stanford and the analysis is exactly that because what we know is that 45Q is not enough to activate in many other sectors so back to our earlier discussion right now you can get $45 a ton credit for uh, sale information storage with 45Q if it costs you $100 to do that you can't make that up on volume so Uh, you need higher levels of incentive in order to get this rolling. You need to align the markets to support this kind of deployment. And so we did an analysis just in the U.S. power sector, and we wanted to understand what additional policies would help. And we looked at a whole bunch of policies, everything from accelerated asset depreciation to master limited partnership status for projects to a production tax credit to contract for differences. We really tried to figure out across a range of policies what would lead to substantial deployment. And we would looked at an enhanced 45Q case where we just said if you just took the existing policy and bumped it up a bit, what would that take in terms of deployment? And we looked just at two classes of power plants, coal-fired power plants and natural gas combined cycle power plants. And we looked at two classes of ownership, ownership by a utility and ownership by a merchant power provider. And we had basically two big punchlines. One of them is on a strictly enhanced 45Q basis, or really for any policy. Who owns the power plant is a massive, massive determinant of whether you can finance the project. Because the costs range just on the basis of ownership between $60 a ton and $110 a ton. That's the project finance cost. That's not the engineering costs if you want to get a project financed, you have to think about things like the debt equity split. You have to think about the return. You have to think about the risk to the investor. And so, and again, this has proven true in everything else. It's proven true for nuclear and for small hydro and for offshore wind and all these other policies. It's the same basic issue. And so financing the project, you would need a 45Q that ranges between 60 and $110 a ton. Uh, The other thing that we found as a major finding is that revenue enhancements for power stations are actually the strongest way to get this done. And there's two reasons why. One, you're paying for what you want. You say, if you capture CO2, then we'll give you more revenue. Like, It's it's not an incentive for anything (laughs) other than zeroing emissions in the power sector. You're you're paying for what you get. Uh, The other reason why is because that provides the clearest signal to investors that they will get their money back. So if you would get an extra, say, 1.3 cents per kilowatt hour, if you did carbon capture and storage, these projects would just run away, like they would finance themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of those numbers are going to be published in the order of a week or two, which means by the time this podcast runs, hopefully this will already be published on
0: our website. I, th- I think that's right. And uh, we'll make sure to have a link to it on the show page, just so people know, it is Friday, March thirteenth, when we're recording this, the uh, the podcast may air several weeks later, um, but we'll uh, we should have a link to it on the show page so people can check it out. Right. Um, uh,
1: the thing that I want to underscore with this is uh, there's lots of different policies that can work, and depending on what you want, you choose a different policy. So. Uh, we found that the revenue enhancements were the best policies compared to, say, tax or capital treatments on the other side. But if your business model is a big bag of cash and you're the government, you just want to hand people a big bag of cash, you can do that and we tell you how big it has to be. If you want to give tax breaks, we tell you how to do that and tell you how big it has to be. Like, you can figure it out one way or another. And it matters in terms of what ends up getting deployed. So, for example, if you do an increased 45Q... That supports coal deployment because you get paid by the ton of CO2 and coal plants make more tons per unit of energy. The opposite is true for a revenue enhancement. If you wanted to support deployment in the gas space, you would pay a dollar per kilowatt hour because you have less CO2 per unit of energy from a gas plant. And so it's just we wanted to just lay it all out there. We're not making a specific policy recommendation. We just say, hey, if you want to deploy, this is what it looks like. And if you want one outcome versus another, you need to know what you're doing.
0: That sounds super useful. Um, and uh, so I look forward to reading the report mm-hmm. when it's out.
1: Two other quick things on that. We just looked at today's technology. We just said, let's we're going to use retrofit with a liquid-based solvent system, which will strip out the CO2 as post-combustion. Like, we just, we didn't look at any advanced technology. Right. The fact is... That's one of our next studies, we're going to come out and say, hey, if you had capture at $30 a ton, and there's a number of companies that say they can do that, what would deployment look like today? Similarly, we're looking at other sectors, we want to look in particular at chemicals and at steel and cement, and see if that is a way where we can make additional policies. Here, the policies look different, because they're things like a procurement policy. Um, which is not really something the government doesn 't buy power very much, but it certainly buys concrete, yeah and it certainly buys steel, so you have a wider policy aperture and really different sectors in terms of their financeability, age of the assets, geographic distribution, other stuff
0: that sounds excellent so um, so yeah we 'll definitely keep up to date uh, with your work, and maybe we'll circle back again in uh, in a year or two and um, you know, talk about the status of CCS in 2021. Um, but now we're about out of time, so I want to ask you the last question that we ask all of our guests, which is uh, what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack, so something you've enjoyed reading or watching or listening to related to energy or the environment that you think is really interesting. Um, and I'll just start off by mentioning a series of blog posts that uh, we're going to be having on the RFS blog, um, authored by my colleagues and friends, Alan Krupnick and Jay Bartlett, Um, that's called 45 Q&A, so (laughs) nice turn of phrase there, I think, uh, where they're essentially looking at um, uh, a a variety of issues related to the 45Q tax credit. Um, And so so it's certainly complementary of our conversation today, and so you'll be able to get all your CCUS uh, wonkery needs by reading Julio's work and also Alan Ajay's work. Um, But how about you, Julio? What's on the top of your stack?
1: Uh, There's two bits of reading that I would strongly recommend to people, uh, one of which I'm doing now and one of which I finished recently. The one I'm doing now is called Engineers of Victory. And it talked about what the science and engineering teams did during World War II. Hmm. Like people... We're like, oh, we just need to mobilize at a World War II level, and then this is done. Well, when we did that, what did we actually do? What problems did we have to solve? Who did we pay to solve the problem? How did we organize the science and engineering teams? It's especially useful in the context of something like CO2 removal from the air, which is such a big challenge. Uh, Understanding what we did in the past will, I think, advise how we think about getting things done going forward. Uh, that's a book by Paul Kennedy. I recommend it to people. It's a good read. Uh, the other book I would recommend is Calestos Juma's incredible work, uh, Innovation and Its Enemies. Hmm. And it talks about how innovations are always fought in culture. And they can be fought for a number of reasons. It could be fought because there's a commercial interest at stake that's fighting it, it could be because of cultural norms. It could be because of questions of fear or distrust. And he goes through everything from how coffee got into Europe to how the Quran was printed on Gutenberg presses to how electricity got into the city of New York to how margarine was marketed. And in (laughs) each case, there were real barriers and real enemies that fought hard to make sure that these innovations didn't get into the market. And uh, Colestos Juma... uh, rest in peace, as an extraordinary writer and thinker uh, uh, who himself lived an extraordinary life. And so it's worth picking up this book and reading it just to learn a bit about Colestos.
0: Wow, great. Those both sound fascinating. Um, so I'll, I'll have to look into them a little bit more and hope our listeners do as well. And I uh, just want to say one more time, thank you again, Julio Friedman, uh, for joining us and teaching us about CCUS. We really appreciate it.
1: It was my great pleasure.
0: You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.